strangleholds, broken toes, nonstop travel, moral outrage, church group protests, and big matches. It's the story of Cora Livingston, Part 5. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed the button. Your device even worked. I know you were thinking it's starting to crap out. Maybe I should replace it, but you don't have to do it yet. Not today. Maybe later today. I don't know what's happening in your life. You don't know what's happening in mine. But what the heck am I talking about? What are we even doing? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, often a ring announcer. But more important for today, I am a pro wrestling historian, and I am joined by my favorite co-host of the day. She is ranked 231st on the top 250 women wrestlers, according to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It's Heidi Howitzer. How's your day going? Oh, that's right. I barely squeaked in, guys. But you know what? It still counts. So... No, it's going, it's going great. We're uh, plugging right along. Uh, our, my lovely co-host here finally figured out how to push the record button as well. So speaking of technical difficulties, you are not alone. We only sat here for five minutes like morons while I figured out that I had not hit the record button. I am not smart in some ways, but fortunately I am smart in others, like researching Cora Livingston. We are here for Cora Livingston Part 5. And yes, Part 5 means there's Parts 1 through 4, and I hope you've listened to them, because otherwise this might not make a lot of sense. If uh, this is your first time here, if you're like, hey, I heard this show is cool, well, you're right. But if it is your first time, maybe go back to Part 1. Uh, kind of find out where Cora came from, where what was her origin story, how did she find herself as a performer, as a sports icon, as a woman in wrestling in the early 1900s. So by the time you get to this, you already know this lady and you want to find out more about her as opposed to going, who's that? Why's that? Was a huzza? That's a legitimate question I ask often of myself. Yes, and by now you should be infinitely familiar with how much Cora Livingston likes to throw hands. She was a violent lady. I think, what is that like your main takeaway so far from this series is just how much Cora Livingston was quite the, uh, the violent, dirty heel of the game? Oh, yes. So many hairs were pulled. Not a scalp left unmarred. And I do want to give the one disclaimer that I, I tend to give, which is I am doing the best I can with the material I can find. When you research pro wrestling, whether it's the late 1800s all the way up to the 1990s, there's a little thing you have to get past, which is wrestling lore, kind of the kayfabing of history, if you will, where there are just certain number of stories that were told at a certain point by a certain someone, not necessarily the person in question, and after decades and decades and decades, they're kind of accepted as facts. We'll kind of get into one of those today, but there are so many times while doing this where you find, oh, this important match wasn't exactly what people think it was, or some people weren't involved, or sometimes things don't exist. It'll make more sense when we kind of get into those topics, but by and large, I am doing the best narrative story I can with the source material that I can find, because a lot of Cora Livingston's history exists in advertisements for burlesque and vaudeville halls, or reviews of those set appearances. 
She was an important sports figure in the early 1900s, which is very impressive for a woman in wrestling in that day. Yes, we did not have a lot of it. And Cora Livingston is one of the few that we actually have a decent amount of material on to reference. There's a lot of other women uh, mentioned in passing in a lot of these articles, but Cora is the only one that actually seemed to get uh, a lot of uh, coverage, really. Exactly. And some of that coverage from our last episode was a beginning of police interferences in her matches. We did cover a few times where the cops were in attendance, didn't like what they saw, so they shut the match down, nearly leading to riots. Whether that was a legitimate response from an outraged police officer, whether it was a planned plant by the promoter and the managers, who can say that that's a, a secret we'll never learn, but it happened. The reaction was exactly what you would want to happen because as many people have uh, said over the years, there is no such thing as bad publicity. Exactly. Turns out the cops are good at getting you in the newspaper. So we'll pick up from an article the St. Louis Star and Times, October 24th, 1910. Women That's wrestler... my birthday. Oh, October 24th, not 1910. Well, you will enjoy this story as a retroactive birthday present. <laughs> Perfect. From the St. Louis Star and Times, women wrestlers to grapple. Quote, hair pulling, eye gouging, biting, and strangling are barred. With this in mind, Cora Livingston, a vaudeville performer, and Laura Bennett, a Kansas City girl, expect to wrestle this week for the female championship of the world. It all happened this way. Were there, were there that many R's in the, uh, in the article? Of course there was. Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> it all happened this way. Miss Livingston's manager at the conclusion of her, quote, act last night, issued an open challenge to any woman wrestler. Whether she expected and accept or is as not, of course, still a question. At the end of October, Cora was still touring with the Jardin de Paris Girls Burlesque Show and was at the Century Theater in Kansas City because, if you remember by the end of the last episode, Laura Bennett of the Bennett Sisters was starting to kind of reappear in the narrative, both as a challenger and a rival just on the business sense. Uh, Laura Bennett was a member of the Bennett Sisters. They were a touring vaudeville group. They were actual sisters. They did add some members later on, but they would give demonstrations of boxing, of wrestling, of fencing, of juggling, all sorts of wacky acts. It was vaudeville after all. And Bennett was a legitimate wrestler. She would do the challenge matches. She was a champion. And she was the biggest, both actual in-ring risk rival to Cora Livingston, as well as probably the equal box office draw in different cities. And she's probably one of the ones that we hear about the most in these articles as well that isn't Cora, I would say. The Chanute Daily Tribune on October 27, 1910, women wrestle for championship, ladylike rules are stipulated. I'm not exactly sure what ladylike rules are, but they were <laughs> yeah, stipulated. Yeah, especially for a Cora match. I don't really know what that entailed. That seems like a broad, uh, broad request. 
an agreement. A request of broads, if you will. Oh, boy, there you go. There we go. There we have it. Carry on. An agreement was signed between Cora Livingston and Laura Bennett, here called Laura for some reason, typing is hard, to wrestle for the championship the following night. Two out of three falls, gouging, hair pulling, biting, and strangleholds are barred, which I guess does qualify as ladylike. I guess Cora, Cora's entire moveset is out the window here. Or was it? From the Kansas, oh. from the Kansas City Times on October 29th, 1910, Livingston won wrestling match. Quote, Cora Livingston retained her hold on the Women's Wrestling Championship last night by defeating Laura Bennett of Kansas City in two straight falls at the Century Theater. The first fall was obtained by head hold at half Nelson in nine minutes, and the second with a double bar hold in two minutes. The match was free of rough work. Oh, really? Okay. Do tell. I, I often wonder when you see the, the matches that are kind of higher stakes and have the free from rough work. You know, I, my immediate brain is, well, why was that? You know, right. What? Higher stakes, you would think they would want to do the rough work. I often wonder because the story is that Laura Bennett in, in, in reality was somebody who knew Cora well and was a trainer of hers, you know, actually taught her a few mm -hmm. tricks of the trade. And obviously there was an important career trajectory for both. So I kind of wonder if this was the way to kind of cement Cora as the legitimate top woman wrestler in the country. Yeah, pass the torch, so to speak. Yeah, something where it wasn't done to set up heat, it wasn't done to set up an immediate rematch, it wasn't done for the sake of future business, you know, three weeks from now. It was just a legitimate, hey, we need to take more spotlight and put it on Cora. And you don't necessarily do that by creating controversy in those situations. So therefore it becomes a clean match. Right, exactly. Uh, and and I guess, yeah, that, that does make sense in that scenario. Normally, uh, yeah, I would be questioning it for the exact same reasons. And many historians have called this a title unification match with a custom-made belt for the occasion. I found nothing about this in the press, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But again, so we have no pictures of the belt itself? Well, well, actually we do, because it did okay. cement Livingston as the top woman in the field with that win over Bennett. And there is a title belt that sold on eBay actually fairly recently that was Livingston's championship belt for this victory. What did that go for? Uh, Do you happen to know? I mean, it was like $1,500. It was, I mean, I for me, I'm like, that's a priceless treasure. But for like 99.9% yeah. .9 of humanity, it's who, what, for how much? Wrestling. No, I'm, I'm with you. That's what, like, on one hand, I'm like, that doesn't seem like much at all. And on the other hand, I'm like, okay, I can get, I can get where, like, that would be, I guess, a reasonable yeah. price or, yeah. Yeah, when you have something as niche as early 1900s wrestling history, and it's not like Frank Gotch's used socks or something like that, it's, it becomes niche on top of niche. So I'm sure that thing is not much has changed in uh, in the DMs. 
Exactly. So I have a feeling, yeah, Cora Livingston's belt was being bid on by like six different nerds. And I would have, and it would have been seven if I knew about it at the time. I was just about to say that I uh, were you the 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 fifteen hundred dollar bill uh, bid. That was going to be my next question. And of course, the other way to cement uh, anything in women's wrestling or kind of smaller market wrestling in these days was to try to tie it to Frank Gotch. From October twenty ninth, nineteen ten. Gotch's protege would try for Miss Livingston's title. There is an attempt to book Miss Florence Berry of Humboldt, Iowa, against Cora. Miss Berry recently came under the eye of Frank Gotch, and it was at his instigation that she came to St. Louis in the hopes of arranging a match. Which, again, Frank Gotch wasn't like a renowned trainer. He, he wasn't running classes in Humboldt, Iowa. He was very rich and worried about his vast holdings of farmland, as well as his wrestling career. So he was a very busy man worrying about his own business. So I assume that if there was any truth to this story, it was Florence Berry meeting Frank Gotch and saying, hey, I'm a wrestler. Maybe I should wrestle Cora Livingston and him going, go get him, Tiger. Like that's, <laughs> that's probably about as much truth as there was to the story. But again, it's so far under his radar that I'm sure he didn't even care to refute it. Right, which is fair. Or the savvy businessman he was, it could have been like, hey, can we use your name to endorse a match? And he goes, give me 20 bucks. Yeah, sure. I have, there, it gets him in the papers and he doesn't have to do shit. Which we love for him. And on November 2nd, 1910, from the St. Louis Globe Democrat, Miss Barry will try for a wrestling title. Livingston versus Barry at the Standard Theater. To a finish, Strangleholds barred, and only pinfalls to count. The match was, to no surprise, described as, quote, the roughest women's wrestling hour ever witnessed in this city. The St. Louis Dispatch on November 3rd, 1910, said, Cora won in 13 minutes. Miss Barry put up a clever argument, but Miss Livingston proved without a doubt that she was Miss Barry's superior at every stage of the game. So I'm guessing the claiming it was an hour was probably the length of the actual show. Um, maybe that 13 minutes from the dispatch was the first fall. Couldn't say, couldn't find a whole lot of other information about that match. But I do tend to support the theory from the Globe Democrat that it was the roughest women's wrestling match they've ever seen in that city because that is Cora's brand. Yeah. I was just going to say, because that was, <laughs> because Cora was in it. But again, it serves its function career-wise and narrative-wise for Cora's benefit because Miss Barry was booked as a protege of Frank Gotch, the greatest wrestler of all time. This was a woman who had his stamp of approval as a, quote, trainee or however they were wanting to bill it, so that you took a woman who was the female heir apparent of Gotch and was thrown into the wood chipper that is Cora Livingston. Which, we love that for her. From the Cincinnati Post, November 24th, 1910, woman wrestler hurt in match. On the 20th, oh, no. I know it's a sad story every time. On the 23rd, Cora gave May Herman a rematch at the People's Theater. I don't know if that's related to a people's elbow. Probably sounds a little bit worse if you drop a building on someone. Maybe completely unrelated. 
May Herman having gone the time limit with a champ earlier in the week. Herman won the first fall in 10 minutes, but in the second was caught at a toehold. The Chicago girl held out gamely against the hold made famous by champion Frank Gotch, but was finally forced, although suffering excruciating pain, to go to the mat after five and one half minutes of wrestling. Miss Livingston's pressure on Miss Herman's toe was so fierce that a physician was summoned who declared the toe had been broken. Oh no. Which, you know, what they're or more like, oh toe. Oh boy. So uh. what they're describing here is in Catch as catch can, a lot of times the submissions are not submissions unto themselves, but ways to turn somebody over for a pin. So a toehold, Frank Gotch was kind of the the godfather of the toehold, because you use that as a pressure on the ankle, and the only way to relieve it is to flop from is to roll over from your front to your back and therefore be pinned. So you're cranking on the ankle, it rolls them over, painful hold, turns into a pin, which is considered the cleaner win. But here's the why I think it's funny they're declaring a toe hold causing a broken toe is funny because you're not actually touching the toes. You can kind of grip them a little bit as part of the torque, but you're putting all the pressure on the ankle. You know, if you are a modern pro wrestling fan, or modern-ish, I'm old, so modern means different things to different people, watch Ken Shamrock or Kurt Angle to see what that finisher looks like. It is a very dangerous, legitimate submission hold. I have been tapped out to it, I have tapped out people to it, and I was horrified watching a Pancrase match where John Lober had his leg folded in half by it. So, Ooh. Well, this is this is also a time when... MMA and like UFC and all that wasn't a uh, a national pastime in the way of you know you've got people watching it like football or soccer or basketball anything like that so there's not the familiarity for people to realize that that would not be affected oh absolutely like people didn't understand where the injury would come from a lot of the time because you're not going down to your local Catch-as-Catch-Can Academy located at the strip mall next to the general store uh, where you buy your, uh, I, don't, I don't even know what the heck they bought in 1910. Is it still hardtack and covered wagon parts? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> very... I don't know. Literally nobody can possibly know that it's another dark age in history. All we know from 1910 is wrestling. Correct. Nothing else existed. In the December 6, 1910 Detroit Times, it covered Cora's match at the Avenue Theater, where the Jardin de Paris girls performed vaudeville and burlesque, and a film of a boxing match was shown as part of the night's entertainment. Uh, this is kind of the early days of things being filmed, where boxing matches and soon enough wrestling matches would be shot, edited almost to a 20-minute highlight reel and shown as a preliminary entertainment before the live entertainment. This was not only revolutionary for entertainment, for stars being built coast to coast when you haven't seen the person live and in person, because keep in mind, there is no radio at this time either. It's all what you're reading in the papers if you're not seeing it live on stage. So this was not only revolutionary in that sense, it was also very lucrative because a lot of times the athletes from those boxing and wrestling matches 
got like sometimes like 50, 60 percent of the revenue from every theater they were showed in. Right, which makes sense. And from the match, quote, Cora had her trouble with the buxom female farmhand Sunday afternoon. The affair gradually developed into an eye-gouging exhibition, and the audience howled in disapproval in such a fashion that the referee announced he would have to bring the curtain down if the noise didn't stop. So, yay, the things are so wild that the referee is threatening to just drop the curtain on the crowd like the end of a gosh darn cartoon. But on the other hand, why are we referring to the wrestler as a buxom female farmhand? <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i know this is terrible but i kind of love that i mean let's not sexualize wrestling guys but also that's a pretty solid one i mean for all we know she was an early kind of like farmer gimmick showing up in overalls and a big old floppy sun hat who can say the piece of straw hanging oh. out of her mouth yeah absolutely has to be there otherwise you're not you're not doing your due diligence. you're not into the gimmick from December 15th, 1910, loses to 17-year-old Lottie Oliver, who had to outlast Cora in a 10-minute time limit for $25, and ended up pinning the champ. Wow, all right. Livingston claims to be very sick afterwards. Yeah, so we have a situation where Lottie Oliver, that is a name you're going to hear again. She is a, a, a returning character, a supporting cast member for the women's wrestling scene of the 1910 to 1920 era. And this was, whether it was a shoot and Livingston was sick, Lottie managed to pin her while, you know, doing an actual shoot match. Because keep in mind, during these challenge matches, the title is not on the line. So this was never right. going to be a title switch. So if you put over this hot up-and-comer Lottie Oliver, and again, if it's a shoot, Cool that she lost a 17-year-old girl who's the badass up-and-comer, which creates a rivalry by accident. If it's a work, which I kind of assume it was, it's a great way, again, to create a new star, a young star, a hot up-and-comer. And, you know, so... Something to keep your eyes on. Yeah, so it kind of creates kind of a, I hate saying it this way, the next Cora, because right. this is 1910. Cora is now rocketing through her 20s, so you create a 17-year-old star like once upon a time Cora was the teenage star. Exactly. Which, it makes sense. How else are you going to do that? Might as well start creating some buzz. At the end of the year, from December 27, 1910, the Jardine Perry Tour brings Livingston to the Royal Theater in Montreal. And then in January 1911 to the Howard in Boston, the Folly Theater in Patterson, New Jersey, and then the Luzerne in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and then on to Scranton. So she is working nonstop. And that's a lot of travel. That's a lot of wrestling. And this isn't, again, modern times. So when you are traveling nonstop like that, you are riding trains. You are riding, you know, things with horses, you know, early automobiles on dirt bumpy roads. Um, it's got to take a toll on your body, especially when you add wrestling in the mix. I mean, even road time in modern transportation plus wrestling beats you up. Something Crowbar, a former WCW wrestler who is now a brilliant physical therapist who offers a lot of good advice to wrestlers on how to maintain their bodies, stated that 
the wrestling unto itself isn't necessarily the worst part of what you do to your body as a wrestler. It's the sitting down for eight hours afterwards. It's going from impact and violence to sitting in a flight for, you know, four hours or sitting in the back of a crowded car for six or seven hours. It's that that creates a lot of the problems. It's why so many people who have back problems, wrist problems, it's not from accidents or sports. It's from working a desk job. The human body is not meant to sit in these weird positions for extended periods of time. Um, so yeah, it's something where the travel, and especially early 1900s travel, is not great for your body. And I do wonder how much that affected a lot of careers in those days. Because I did read a lot where from the 1800s through the 1920s, where a wrestler would go on tour and it's literally coast to coast different cities every night. And by the time they get to the end of their tour, they're being reported as looking tired and fat because. <laughs> you know, Sorry. I feel the same way after a long trip. Yeah, these, these guys and gals, they are not able to be like, okay, my nutritionalist says that we're going to stop by the Whole Foods in this town and get this. No, you're eating steak, eggs, bacon, and hash browns in diners three times a day while on the road. You are not... I mean, that sounds pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, it does until you have to, you know, put on a somewhat skimpy outfit and have to look physically intimidating in front of 4,000 people. Ah, uh, yes, my personal hell. January 26, 1911, Livingston gave a rematch to a, quote, Scranton local girl, Miss Ruth Miller, after the latter outlasted the former in a time limit match. After 12 minutes of rough work, the referee who was chosen from the audience, I have questions there, we'll get back to that, <laughs> ended it on a foul over Cora strangling Miss Miller. Quote, the crowd heartily cheered the referee's action in disqualifying the champ, and Miss Miller, on the other hand, was loudly applauded. This is the first time that such a match between two girls has ever been pulled off in this city. So we kind of have that, hey, we're going to try to announce the awesomeness of women's wrestling by having a brutal, you know, violent match ending in a disqualification, get all the heat on Cora, all the shine onto this local gal, so she then can be a bit of a draw once Cora is out of town. But my real question is, what the fuck with the referee chosen from the audience? How are you supposed to be a uh, discerning official when you're uh, a, a plain audience member? And I mean, you uh, never would that occur to me to ever do that as, in, as a good idea ever, uh, ever, ever. But yeah. I guess in these days, at least you have marks who have some idea or think they have some idea of how wrestling works uh then like if you're just going to a uh vaudeville show a little carnival you may be clueless so you know i have a sneaking suspicion they may have been a plant and obviously they were but what a magical thing it would be if because yeah it'd be like i'm sure they were like is there a referee in the house I'm a referee. Guy a doctor. Yeah, a guy stands up. He's already wearing black slacks, like a button-up shirt tucked in with a little bow tie. I'm a referee. Right. Well, get up here, you <laughs> silly goose. We got some work for you. 
Do I get a refund on my ticket? I wasn't expecting to work tonight. Shut up. But how magical would it be if they just like brought up an audience member who had no goddamn clue what the rules were and they're like, okay, you're the referee. And he's like, coming to a Lucha Libre and laughs match near you. <laughs> the first time I refereed, I'm, this was a many year ago. It was at a small Lucha show. Fortunately, nobody was there and the wrestlers were able to uh, take care of it. I blanked on a lot. I mean, obviously I wasn't missing pinfalls, but they were like fighting in the ropes and hanging onto the ropes. And finally <laughs> they both are just staring at me. I'm like, oh, right. One, uno, <laughs> dos. And then a, one of them, a lawless wasteland. Yeah. One of them just grabbed me by the shoulders. Like, do you know the rules? I'm like, yeah, I'm just stupid. He goes, okay, good. And then they did. <laughs> And then they essentially went, hey, everyone, look how stupid the ref is. Hey, a referee, look over there. And I look over there while the tag team partner kicks the other guy in the balls. So at least they were able to play off the fact I was a moron and make it part of the match. And as it often happened, by mid-February, Lottie Oliver was claiming to be the women's champion based on her win over Livingston in December. And the... Buffalo News on February 15th claimed that Cora owes her a match for the proper title and a $500 side bet. And Oh, her, that is a disgusting amount of money at that time. And I really wonder, was that something either party was bringing up, or was that the Buffalo News just making an arbitrary, like, oh yeah, she owes her a proper match and uh, 500 bucks. Yeah, 500 bucks. That sounds good. That sounds like a nice number. And for those of you who wonder, how much would $500 be as a side bet in those days? The answer is $15,544. A side bet. Yeah, it's like a side bet. Like, hey, what do I have in my purse that I could wager upon this event? Oh, <laughs> I have $15,000. Do you accept gold? <laughs> Loot, bounty, treasure. From the Detroit Times on February 15th, 1911, she's a female gotch. And no, it wasn't a comparison between Livingston and Gotch's flair for heel shit and hippodroming brilliance. It was about 17-year-old Miss Oliver, who has been wrestling since she was 12 and, quote, beat Cora in 10 minutes. But Miss Oliver is ready to challenge for a proper match with the title on the line and is described as, quote, the most scientific woman wrestler in the world. And speaking of Gotch, around this time, half of Cora's opponents and even Cora herself were listed as being trained by Gotch. Again, Gotch was the biggest wrestling star in America, if not the world, so everything was gravitating towards him and associating with him for the sake of legitimacy and box office success. Right. Always piggyback on the person who's doing great. Smart. Good business. In March of 1911, she was back at the Howard in Boston, and at the same time, John L. Sullivan and Jack Kilrain were performing at the Howard as well, giving exhibitions and telling stories of the olden days. If you want to hear any more about that, check out my series on Parson Davies, the John Sullivan, Jack Kilrain, both their fight and the way they cashed in on it for decades. 
is an enormous story, an entertaining story, a wild story, a violent, drunken story, but already did that. We don't have all day. Not going to recap it in depth. Check out that series. It's worthwhile. And for Korra, it was then off to Philly in April, then to the Lyceum in D.C., the New Monumental in Baltimore, and back to the Academy in Pittsburgh, and then off to the Avenue in Detroit. Again, non-stop work for Cora Livingston. From April 11th, 1911, an ad for the New Lyceum appearance in Washington, D.C., also featuring Rago, the man of mystery. I love going through, like, so much of her career is vaudeville and burlesque calls, and the ads for those are so wild, where it's like, wrestling, next week, a magician, week after that, a seance, after that, a lighthearted comedy. <laughs> Weren't those the days? Bring it back. From April 1911, I found articles about wrestler Miss May Kelly advertised as having, quote, won the championship a year ago when she defeated Miss Laura Bennett and Miss Cora Livingston at a championship meet held out West. The West in 1910 was still such a nebulous foreign land of exotic goings on. And yeah, I am putting this down to the marketing bullshit of wrestling before national news connected the dots. I'm not saying that Mae Kelly couldn't have won a handicapped time limit match, but her winning the title in a to-a-finish match seems highly unlikely, judging from Cora's press coverage. So it's the old, say it often enough and eventually it'll sound true marketing plan. It also doesn't help when two different newspapers could print completely different results for the same match. So yeah, it was, Gotch was doing the same thing. Lots of wrestlers were doing the same thing. They would be in the they would be in places like Philadelphia, New York, D.C., Baltimore, even Kansas City, but be like, oh, I won a championship out west in the foreign crazy land of California or Arizona, <laughs> where people are like, oh my god, like they, they they picture it like a western still, where they're fighting off Native American attacks on covered wagons and in a grand saloon. Yeah, they were still picturing it very much that, and in some places they weren't far off. So yeah, you were able to say, hey, I won this tournament out west. It was like saying you won an international tournament in Rio de Janeiro. Try proving me wrong. You can't suck it. Beautiful. Lottie Oliver was also getting plenty of press in those days. On May 3rd, 1911, the Buffalo Inquirer claimed she got up at 5 a.m. every morning, ran four or five miles, and skipped rope for half an hour. It said, that she, it said that she was trained by her father, who was a wrestler. On the topic of intergender matches, Lottie said, quote, I would not be afraid to tackle any of these wrestlers, regardless of sex, were it not for the fact that we women have to keep in our place or all sorts of slurs and allegations are cast against us. I mean, not much has changed there. Yep, thank goodness that we are far past the primitive days of 1911, where if a woman was to wrestle a man, she'd be run down by shitty dudes on... What's... Did they have Twitter back then? <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it wrestling. was called X at that time. Yeah, I only know wrestling history. Everything else is a mystery to me. So, yeah, it's... 
pretty much her saying, I would whoop a man's ass, but I know I would probably get called every name in the book by, by dudes in the press or in public. How odd. And the occasional losses in challenge matches, the time limit expirations, did create a lot of confusion, not just for giving women the opportunity to claim to be the real champion or should have a shot at being the real champion or the de facto real champion. It even confused the press because the Detroit Times on May 10th referred to Cora as, quote, former champion woman wrestler who was planning a world tour. So all those L's that she took through DQs, time limits, or pins to set up proper matches creates a certain amount of confusion because, again, she wasn't Frank Gott, she wasn't Tom Jenkins, she wasn't, you know, Farmer Burns or Dan McLeod, where the focus was so intense on them that you couldn't escape the reality of their record and their status. She was going vaudeville hall to vaudeville hall. She was taking lots of losses for the sake of disqualification heat spots. So yeah, I can understand why these, you know, the average person writing copy for a newspaper could be confused about that. Only makes sense. May 25th, 1911. Cora Livingston and Lottie Oliver have the first of three matches booked at the Lafayette Theater, according to the Buffalo Inquirer the following day. Cora needed to throw Lottie in 10 minutes and failed to do so. The tables would turn the following night, and guess what? I couldn't find a goddamn thing for the rest of the series. My guess, <laughs> yeah, again, there's so much missing from the record because these were kind of smaller regional matches. So if you can't find the May 27th issue of the Buffalo Inquirer, guess what? You don't get to know what happened. And Oh, my, what a cliffhanger. My guess is they probably went one apiece and then a DQ for the final. They knew how to draw money. That was Cora Livingston 101. You win the first, opponent wins the second. You go back for the third. Cora strangles or eye gouges or throws elbows to the neck and gets disqualified, keeps the baby face intact. She doesn't drop the title. Cora is now again getting more heat, still has the championship, sets up future business. Who can possibly say, but that's kind of what feels right to me. They're doing it right. After the summer break, because keep in mind, wrestling was a seasonal sport. In these days, there were no real matches during summertime unless it was like a big festival match or a 4th of July. That was a very popular date for the bigger stars. But for the most part, vaudeville halls were not as active during the summertime. Sports were not active during the summertime. Because it was fucking hot, guys. Yeah, because A, there was no such thing as air conditioning. So when you have a building that gets to be 110 degrees in the summertime, guess what? Nobody wants to do sports in there, I guarantee it. And also, so much of America was still very agricultural, and there was a lot of work to be done during the summer and early fall season in order to make sure that your town didn't starve. Apparently, that's slightly more important than watching grappling. <laughs> so strange. But after the summer break, she pops up again in Detroit at the Dewey Theater. Lottie Oliver is still claiming that she should be known as the rightful champ, and the press claims she's also learning how to be a boxer, because that was a selling point when a wrestler wanted more attention. She learned that from Gotch and from Jenkins, because as popular and big a star as Frank Gotch was, Jim Jeffries 
was a titan above him. So a lot of wrestlers would come out and say, oh, I'm going to switch over to being a boxer as well. I'm so badass. I'm not only good at wrestling, I could whoop the boxing champion's ass as well. Because that kind of calling out, that sort of challenge, that sort of kind of pompous claimant is a great way to get more attention on you. Lottie Oliver figured that out very young and was pulling the trigger. Smart. Almost never did they actually get involved in boxing, and when they did, it would often be disastrous. A lot of times, <laughs> like, like Frank Gotch found this out the hard way, he set the formula for what happens when a wrestler tries boxing. He comes out, he does very, very badly, he's getting bombed on, he clinches and throws his opponent over the ropes or on his head, whether that's, again, a work, a shoot, whatever, but that's how it ends up going almost every single time. I want to be a boxer. Yep, I want to be a boxer. I can be a boxer. Oops, I'm getting punched. Oh, I instinctively threw the person over the ropes and into the crowd and got disqualified. Oopsie doodles, where's my pay? <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. From Detroit, Cora then went on to Council Bluffs and then to Omaha. And in Kansas City on August 28th, 1911, promoter Joseph Donegan, manager of the Century Theater, offered a $500 purse for a rematch between Cora Livingston and Laura Bennett. Ooh, big spender. Yeah, again, that would be a lot of money if they were able to put it together. From the September 24th, 1911 Omaha Daily News, announcing the Jardin de Paris tour will be at the Krug Theater. Nothing super special about it, but it was kind of magical for me. It was part of a full-page piece about the events at the theaters across the city. The Krug, now demolished. The Gaiety, closed in 1928 and later demolished. The Orpheum, demolished to make room for the newer Orpheum in 1926. The Brandy's Theater, demolished in 1959 and turned into a parking lot. The American, which burned down in 1928, and the Boyd Theater, demolished in 1920. There were photos, all beautiful buildings with lots of history, even in 1911. And if you want to feel a bit of sadness, look up the vaudeville, burlesque, and silent film theaters that were in your city. I guarantee it'll break your heart a little to know that they were there, they were beautiful, and now they're gone. Um, I'm in Denver, and along Curtis Street, there was a theater row that would rival 42nd Street in New York. There were those giant vaudeville turned silent film theaters that would hold a thousand people, sometimes have two balconies, the big beautiful neon lights lining the street, almost all gone except for the Paramount, torn down and turned into bland office buildings and parking lots as the need for that type of theater waned in the 1950s, 1960s. Sad, um, I'm fortunate I work in a old movie theater that was built in 1927, now it's a concert venue, home of Lucha Libre and Laughs, the greatest comedy and pro wrestling show in Denver. We're going to narrow that one really down so I can grab the crown. <laughs> yes. Of but course. But yes, it was, a, it was a really interesting article to look at for somebody like me who is fascinated with old movie theaters and venues. Yeah, it's always uh, 
a bummer when you uh you see all the stuff that all those historical buildings that have not been protected by uh as any kind of historical monument especially when you uh go to a small city or town and they have really kept up with a lot of that stuff yeah it's always interesting when you go to a small town and they have that same movie theater that's been there since world war ii only yeah but then showing modern movies yeah they're showing modern movies but they only have one screen and they only show two movies because they have to alternate the reels back and forth they're small they're cool they're beautiful they serve their function and it's magical that they still exist Yes, exactly. From the Columbus, Ohio Republic, November 17th, 1911, Lady Wrestlers. From various quarters, protests are going up against the wrestling match that has been advertised for the City Hall tonight. Protests? And why was that? Elsewhere in this paper is a protest signed by ministers of six of the leading churches of the city, voicing their sentiment. Oh boy. Here we go. Yep. Voicing their sentiment against the letting of the city hall for such a purpose, holding that the spectacle of women wrestling is not conductive to the good morals of the community, but is degrading and debasing and a reflection upon and a disgrace to American womanhood. The ministers make of the furthest point that the city officials in letting the city hall auditorium for the purpose have overstepped the bonds of priority and made a great mistake in surrendering a public building for the questionable purpose. Well, wrestling and sin go hand in hand. Don't you know? If you've been backstage at any wrestling show, you'd know that's true. True. The Republican believes the position of the ministers on this question is eminently correct. The spectacle of two women garbed in the costume of wrestler or in their ordinary and proper habiliment Heaving and straining, fainting, grappling with one another before the gaze of men and youths only can be anything elevating or edifying. Very much a, won't someone think of the children? Again, glad to see how progressive uh, the media and uh, the surrounding has become. While there may be no law on the statute books which could be applied to prevent such undignified, unladylike, and uncalled-for exhibitions, the moral stamina of men should prevent their attendance and without patronage such such disgusting exhibitions would cease. So, holy crap, what a bit to unpack here. With the, I was like, just about to say, just just leveling accusations of essentially pornographizing—that's a word I've decided—women's pro wrestling, saying it's bad not just for men and children; it's bad for society. It flies in the face of universal dignity and obviously is a sign of moral decay, and that. Men need to show the self-moral restraint to stay home to let this horrendous circus freak exhibition die of neglect. Well, yes, of course. Their their strong moral fiber will definitely keep them from uh, partaking in that. (laughs) Jesus. The match in question was to be between Cora Livingston and Blanche Schmidt of Cincinnati. Quote, 
Those who attend will do so at the expense of their self-respect. And their souls. 27 women of the city signed a protest and sent it to the mayor. Quote, the women asked the mayor to use all the power vested in him as mayor of the city to stop the match and thus save the city the disgrace of it. They also say that the match would be demoralizing to the boys and girls of the city and that they should be protected from its demoralizing influence. The mayor said that, quote, he knew of no law under which he was authorized to stop the match. Mayor Barnaby also said that, in his opinion, he had no more legal or official right to stop the match than he had to stop a trapeze performance on the stage or otherwise, in which women were engaged. Mayor Barnaby sounds like he was a big wrestling fan, and I yeah. love that. He probably had tickets, that's my guess. So Yeah, he was making money. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they're, they're talking about how, again, this is... This isn't just like stopping something they didn't want to see. This is the ruination of the city itself that they are trying to prevent. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. The Republic on the 18th with wives camping on the trails of their husbands at the wrestling match between two women. Large crowd present because of rough work of Miss Livingston. Match was called off after second fall and will be repeated tonight. So, quote... There would doubtlessly have been a larger crowd present had not some of the men of the city been prohibited from going by their wives and sweethearts. So, like, the upstanding women of the town are literally stalking their husbands, brothers, fathers, whatever, to ensure they weren't going to a wrestling match. A wrestling match. Good. Good. The match was called off after the second fall because Livingston was roughing up her opponent and was cranking the toehold. Cora took the first fall in 12 minutes 30 seconds, and Miss Schmidt took the second fall in 10 seconds. You heard me right, 10 seconds. Whoa! Cora was putting her over big. Quote, there were a number of women present, some of whom were accompanied by their husbands, some by their sweethearts, and still others were there who braved all convention and went alone. You know, honestly, it's not really like bad press, though, because you're going to get a lot of curiosity tickets, if nothing else. Yeah, it's something where you sell it as a brutal freak show that has no place in society or a decent society at any rate. And you know what that's going to do? Move tickets by people who want to see this forbidden taboo thing. Yeah, it's like uh, the whole reason fucking... Underground fight clubs or whatever have always existed, and etc. etc. And what was the fallout? What was the postscript on this match? On the 20th, Jack Mills, Cora's husband and manager, still was quoted by the Buffalo Inquirer with, quote, Some women in this town tried to stop a wrestling match between Cora and Miss Schmidt of Cincinnati. But the mayor would not stand for it, and attended the contest himself, and was as enthusiastic as anyone in the big hall. He had his son also <laughs> witness the match. Yeah, mayor well, sounds like a good time. Yeah, whether that's true or not, it was a fun way to kick sand in the face of the squares. Also on November 20th, 1911, wrestling match in the city building. Saturday night was called a fake by those who attended. Livingston took one fall. Quote, those who attended the wrestling match in the City Hall Friday night 
doubtlessly felt intuitively, if not distinctly, that they were being faked, and those who attended the match on Saturday night were sure of it. There was but one fall in the principal match, which was between Cora Livingston of Buffalo and Bertha Schmidt of Cincinnati, and the fall was won by Miss Livingston after the two had scuffled for a time, which the management doubtlessly believed would satisfy the crowd. But it did not satisfy the crowd, and when the match was closed, there were cries of fake all over the room. One of the promoters... Oh, no. One of the promoters of the match refereed the women's match, and when he called a fall on Miss Schmidt, she was off the mat. The next wrestling match promoter who comes to Columbus will doubtlessly not make a fortune from his venture. So all so we're this already getting the we're already getting the cries of, of fake. So all this moral outrage, all this protest, all this think of the children, think of Jesus, think of whatever. All of it comes to this crescendo where they probably made the match more of a draw than it would have been to begin with. And what happens in the end? Everybody going, wait a minute, this is a fake wrestling match. Boo, fake. <laughs> so, yeah, the press riled everybody up. The churches riled everybody up. And in the end, they had to be embarrassed and say, we just got gold by fake wrestling, not real wrestling. And I do love that they still went out there and did their hyper-violent act. Like, they didn't dial it back for the sake of the church crowd. They just were like, screw this, let's go, let's just do what we do and outrage everyone. Which they did, Perfect. the place went wild, but in the end, even like the people watching were like, god damn it, we just got swindled. <laughs> and I love that the it ends with, you know, the next wrestling promoter that comes to Columbus isn't going to make a dime because these assholes already burned the ticket holders. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And on that wacky note, I feel like this is a good place to call it a day, to call it a night, to call it an afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that whatever time it may be. I'm sorry to abandon you under such circumstances, but we have plenty more to talk about in the story of Cora Livingston. It's just not going to happen today. Something I did notice as I was kind of searching Cora Livingston is there are a few other people who have done podcasts about Cora, but it's always like one 20-minute survey of her career as a whole, not the deep, insane dive that we are undertaking right now. So I was literally going to say, but they are not as good as ours. Well, of course not. What? How could they be? But that's one thing I love about doing this show, is taking that person who would normally be the 20-minute, oh, did you know there was a woman wrestler in the early 1900s? Bloop, 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 done, onto something else. Nope, I obsess, I go deep, I am here, lost in the weeds of history, bringing the, the treasure that I find to you. I feel like that metaphor got pulled off adequately. Uh, how are you liking this? What do you think of this episode? I thought it was good. I liked it. It's interesting to see uh, some of new names introduced, too, that we haven't discussed previously. Yeah, wow. And it's, once again, good to know that not much has changed in uh, a century, over a century. Yep, I do love Lottie Oliver's quotes about intergender wrestling. I do love the way that contextualizes sports and women's combat sports. The outrage from the church group. I mean, if you look at how women's MMA was greeted when it went mainstream, you're going to see a lot of a, a lot of parallels there as well. 
Um, but if you're on social media, make sure you're following us on Twitter. I'm going to call it Twitter forever. Never going to change that. Instagram, Facebook. I'm not posting as much content on Coral Livingston as I normally would, but that's because it's always the same photo. It's always like the one of three photos or like with the same advertisement, which is the date changed. So yeah, I'm a little slacking on the social media posts, but that's just because it would just be repetitive. That's the excuse I'm going to go with. I also wanted lack to... of content, guys. Yep, I'm also We're wanna... working with what we got. I want to thank uh, Lydia, Keith, and Mike for their donations. That does keep the uh, this thing going. It helps me keep the the server paid for. I'd be doing this for free no matter what. But if you feel like throwing a few bucks my way for the love of the show, well, that's in the description. How you do that via Venmo or PayPal. I appreciate the heck out of you for being here. Stay tuned for part six. For Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossert. Talk to you then.